The Silence of the Lambs was a 1991 film based on the novel by Thomas Harris, written in 1988. In this film, there is a decisive moment when the FBI agent, Clarice Starling, played by Jodie Foster, discovers a crucial piece of evidence. She finds a moth, a dead moth, inserted in the severed head of a victim. Following that scene, Starling goes to meet Hannibal Lecter, played by Anthony Hopkins. Her purpose is to probe him regarding this piece of evidence, this moth, and to extract from him whatever information she can that will lead her to track down the serial killer called Buffalo Bill. So here is some dialogue from that scene, two pages, which runs to about two minutes of screen time. Bear with me. Obviously, I can't impersonate the voices of the actors or characters. The conversation begins with Lecter speaking. The significance of the moth is change, Clarice. Caterpillar into cocoon, into beauty. Billy wants to change, too, Clarice. But there's the problem of his size, you see. Even if he were a woman, he'd have to be a big one. Clarice, puzzled. Dr. Lecter, there's no correlation in the literature between transsexualism and violence. Transsexuals are very passive. Lecter, clever girl. You're so close to the way you're going to catch him. Do you realize that? Clarice, no. Tell me why. Lecter, Billy's not a real transsexual, Clarice, but he thinks he is. He tries to be. He's tried to be a lot of things, I expect. Clarice, you said I was very close to the way we would catch him. Lecter, there are three major centers for transsexual surgery. Johns Hopkins, the University of Minnesota, and Columbus Medical Center. I wouldn't be surprised if Billy has applied for sex reassignment at one or all of them and had been rejected. Clarice, on what basis would they reject him? Dr. Lecter, the personality inventories would trip him up. Rorschach, Welcher, house tree person. He wouldn't test like a real transsexual. Clarice, how would he test? Lecter, Billy hates his own identity. He always has, Clarice, and he thinks that makes him a transsexual. But his pathology is a thousand times more savage. He wants to be reborn. He will be reborn like a moth. Clarice, 
I think you were telling me the truth in Baltimore, or starting to. Tell me the rest now. Lecter. I've studied the case file. Have you? Everything you need to find is right there in these pages. Clarice. Then tell me how. Lecter. First principles, Clarice. Simplicity. Read Marcus Aurelius. Of each particular thing, ask, what is it in itself? What is its nature? What does he do, this man you seek? Clarice. He kills women. No, Lecter interrupts. That's incidental. What is the first and principal thing he does? What need does he serve by killing? Clarice. Anger, social resentment, sexual thrust. No. Lecter interrupts. No. He covets. That's his nature. And how do we begin to covet, Clarice? Do we seek out things to covet? Make an effort to answer, Clarice. No, we just lecter. No, precisely. We begin by coveting what we see every day. Don't you feel eyes moving over your body, Clarice? I hardly see how you couldn't. And don't your eyes move over the things you want, the things you covet. End of scene. Now I ask you, as Lecter asked Clarice, do we seek out things to covet? She tries to answer, as you might. And he says, no. Why does he say no? Because in fact, we don't seek things to covet in life. They come to us. They may come to us simply in observations we make normally and naturally all the time. So Lecter says, and this is the wisdom of Hannibal Lecter. We begin by coveting what we see every day. Don't you feel eyes moving over your body, Clarice? I hardly see how you couldn't. And don't your eyes move over the things you want? Coveting. Not a phrase, not a word you hear often, is it? To covet. It's kind of an old fashioned word. You might be familiar with it from the Bible. It's in one of the Ten Commandments, and it says, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. Now, I don't often quote the Bible, as you probably know, but it's quite apt in this context. 
Now, in order to show you how apt it is, I'm going to put a little unspin on the spin of those words. Thou shalt not. Those three simple words, thou shalt not. I think you would agree that those words carry a lot of power. They express what is called an interdiction, a statement that tells you you are forbidden to do something. And of course, in the biblical narrative, in the Holy Scripture, that is said to have been dictated by the Father God himself, the deity is expressing his rules. And he is saying, Obey me, thou shalt not disobey me, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. Thou shalt not do this or do that. It's an authoritarian form of language. God speaks in that way, as many people believe, to human animals. Authorities speak that way. Teachers, educators, all kinds of people, including parents, who might say to a child, Thou shalt not do this or that, even though they might put it in other words, that's what they would intend to say. So what happens when you unspin those words? What is the hidden implication? Well, it's simple. Thou shalt not refers to not committing a sin. Now, sin is a theological concept but it's also a psychological concept. And sin, in the traditional sense, means disobeying the rules of God, the authorities, parents. That is a sin. It is a sin to disobey. But in fact, if you unspin the word sin and go to its original meaning, you actually find that it means missing the target. So it implies, rather than disobedience to some supreme authority or some mundane authority, it implies missing the target, aiming for something and missing it. That's a sin, purged from the spin of theology and religious authoritarianism. See where I'm going? Now, anyone out there who knows me even a little might probably infer or assume that I do not talk in religious authoritarian terms. And yet I find the word sin appropriate in one particular case, there is one supreme sin of the human animal. There is one supreme and universal case of missing the target. And what is that target? It is self-love. And the sin of missing 
self-love is coveting. It is the consequence of missing the target of self-love. If there were to be any sin at all, devoid of the notion of disobedience, that is it. And so, if you or I or anyone misses the mark of self-love, there is a consequence. There is a possible consequence. And the worst possible consequence of that is that you or I or anyone else would covet what others have. But to take it to an even deeper level, to covet what others are. Now, someone who has self-love, someone who doesn't miss the mark, knows what they are. And they know the inner beauty, and innocence, purity and power of the human animal, the anthropos, the magical child of the wisdom goddess. That inner beauty, which is reflected and expressed in outer beauty in many, many ways, that inner beauty doesn't necessarily show itself in what is conventionally viewed as outer beauty. The conventional standards of outer beauty are corrupt and degenerate. But there is that beauty of being human in everyone. The innocence of children radiates that beauty. And those human animals who miss the mark and do not find it in themselves covet it. In everyone else, they see. They see it in everyone else but themselves, and it turns them into monsters. This syndrome is the root of what is called gender dysphoria today. And if you can see that, you can also see how, when that condition is not wisely and compassionately directed so that it can be overcome, the results in human behavior will be vile, ugly, and hatefully aggressive, and they cannot be otherwise. That is the backlash of coveting. It so happens that in the sense I'm describing it here, coveting has exactly the same meaning of a word found in the Gnostic teachings. The word phonos, the Greek word phonos, which means envy. To covet is to envy. To envy is to see in others something worthwhile, beautiful, pure, precious, honest, genuine, innocent, that you cannot see in yourself if you miss the mark, if you sin, 
against your own basic humanity. And the consequences will always be the same. Envy is an emotion that causes people not only to want what others have, but to want to take it from them and to want them not to be able to have it and not to be able to enjoy it. It's different than jealousy. There's a normal and natural aspect to jealousy. I may look at myself inside, I may look at my appearance, the way I behave, and I may find that, oh, I'm not as beautiful as someone else I see. I'm not as smart. I'm not as competent. And that I may be jealous of them. But that jealousy is not necessarily negative because it can give me something to aspire to, to be as smart, to be beautiful in my own way, to be competent in whatever it is that I can do, large or small, doesn't matter. But due to the sin of missing the mark of self-love, even healthy jealousy cannot survive and it corrupts itself into envy, into coveting. So what am I saying here? Is this a big deal? Who am I talking to? Who's listening? And am I saying something you never heard before? Something that ever never crossed your mind? Am I saying something that I can't say, that I'm not allowed to say? something that will be removed from this channel by due to violation of terms of service. Well, it is a fact that the screenplay is online. You can go and read it. You can get the movie. And there are excerpts from The Silence of the Lambs posted on YouTube, which contain the exact same dialogue that I've quoted here. So what's going to happen now? Have I crossed the boundary line? Have I disobeyed the overlords of the social media? I don't know. Or have I said anything that surprises you or shocks you? I don't know. There's no way for me to know because I'm not there face to face with you although you can comment as you see appropriate. Could be that there's nothing radical or revolutionary about my commentary here on a passage from a well-known movie. Perhaps not. But then on the other hand, I'm inclined to think that anything that is said in truth and honesty about the problem of self-love in the human animal is pretty damn radical one way or the other. So I'll leave you with that. I'll leave you with those words of wisdom from Hannibal Lecter. Enough said.